Hello there, listener, and welcome to another Metacast interview. In this series, we invite the most interesting people in the gaming industry to learn from their stories, successes, failures, and spicy takes. I'm your host, Nicolas Vreke, or Nico for short, and today I have the pleasure to speak with none other than Uri Marchant. Uri is the co-founder and CEO of Overwolf, the guild for in-game creators that allows them to create, grow, and monetize in-game mods and apps. Uri, welcome to the Metacast. Thank you, Nico. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Where does this podcast find you? Right now I'm at home. Um, so with all the COVID situation here, as we came back, um, home for us is Israel. I live something mm-hmm. like 40 minutes outside of Tel Aviv, no traffic. And we try to work something like three days in the office and two days uh, at home. But specifically in August, we have a work from anywhere policy. So mm. like, if you want to fly abroad, you can do that as long as you can have an okay work environment and be productive, mm. then we allow that. So right now I'm at home. This is the short answer. All right. Great. Okay, let's dive into things. So um, I personally first heard of Overwolf about six years ago when I was mm-hmm. tryharding in Hearthstone and used your nice. Hearth Arena companion app. Um, and later I also used Overwolf apps in Teamfight Tactics and Warzone. Um, and I have to say, I mean, the reason I used them was because they really enhanced my gaming experience. Uh, you know, in Hearthstone, I didn't need to write down what cards I already use and all that right. stuff. Um, so that was super useful. Um, but yeah, but overall, it's, it's much more than that today. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, the company has seen quite a big transformation since its inception. So yep. before we dive into what Overwolf is today, maybe let's take a step back and discuss the early days. So you co-founded Overwolf, uh, it's almost 12 years ago, 11 years ago. What was your initial vision mm-hmm. and, and what, what problem did you detect and feel and, and what were you trying to solve? Sure. Uh, so yeah, we I started working full time with uh, basically two friends back then in May of 2010 when we finished computer science and graduated. Back then we had a very simple problem we wanted to solve. We used to use Skype when playing online games. And, you know, when you're using Skype, someone texts you. If you're in a game, you cannot see what's going on. Mobile mm-hmm. devices were not as big back then and multitasking was virtually impossible. So tabbing out would freeze the game or crash the game. And we had this idea that we thought, what if we don't start from scratch and build another you know, communication product, but we take the existing one that we loved and perfect the experience so that it works well for gamers. And then we thought, once we do that, why don't we add a browser? Because sometimes you tab out to check out some things online, or why don't we add social media connectivity? And eventually the first idea behind Overwolf graduated into becoming this like Swiss army knife of a bunch of features that we set ourselves the mission to build. So this is how mm. things started. All right. Um, yeah, because I, I remember, well, I, I, I did some research and I saw videos of people, you know, in World of Warcraft showing off all the cool stuff and it could really do anything, right? Because they were like super excited about the fact that you also like you could record gameplay and all that and all that stuff. Correct. We also had gameplay recording. I, I think, you know, back then we every new idea that we heard either from the community or that we wanted to build for ourselves, we just started building. We mm. had this crazy mentality of, uh, I think, young entrepreneurs, you know, the disease of, oh, sure, we can do that. Sure, mm. we can do that. And it's just like having a lot of kids, uh, maybe technically the physical thing you need to do to have kids doesn't require a lot of effort, but then if you want them to graduate, go to university, you need to invest a lot in their education. And that was the disease we had back then. We uh, we just thought short term. 
Yeah, so that, that's an interesting view, right? So th this might, you know, already tie into my next question, which is when I looked at your website, you're quite open in your story about um, some of the mistakes that you made and some challenges that you faced early. Um, could you tell us a bit more about like, especially like the challenges you faced and, and the, the mistakes you made and then what you learned from that? Yeah, sure. I think um, it comes down to focus at the end in these early days. And um, for me, everything was mixed between the big vision for the company and where we want to be in the future to what we need to do tomorrow. And I think if you're an entrepreneur and you're building a business, you better think very, very big on what you're building, hmm. but start small. Because what ends up happening if you think really, really big and you think you need to achieve everything within the next 12 months or 16 months or 18 months before your money runs out, you're probably going to be left without anything. And this mm -hmm. is what happened to us. We tried to develop both Skype at high quality and then game capture and the browser and social media and so many different things. And we ended up having this very mediocre product where it was like jack of all trades, but master of none. Mm -hmm. And it's the safe way to fail if you're in the consumer or entertainment space. So I think at the end of the day, it comes down to focus and quality hmm. and the maturity to differentiate between where you want to be in 10 years versus what you need to do tomorrow. And in our case, I think what we should have done, what we should have done better is probably to focus on a single feature for a single game, do it in amazing quality, and then perhaps evolve into doing additional things or to do what we are doing today. But back then, it was a big mistake doing all those things altogether. Mm-hmm. And so when did the realization come that you were on a, on a wrong path and, and, and doing things wrong? And, and how, did that, like, how did that insight grow that you had to change? I think it started back in mid-2012. So we were below radar between 2010 and then the first release of the product back in July of 2011. Once we released it, we actually got a lot of traction. So a lot mm -hmm. of great feedback. Everybody were amazed. Not everybody, but at least some feedback that we got, both from big companies and users were like, wow, this is amazing. How, how did you guys manage to build so much with such a small team? And that got us motivated. And um, we came across a few opportunities and we decided to execute on them. And, you know, we thought that this is going to be the way. And then things started not to work, you know, uh, numbers did not grow, revenue did not come back in, say, mid-2012. Mm -hmm. And we started back then thinking, hey, are we doing this wrong? But then there was another opportunity that came along for a very big collaboration with a very big company that looked really, really promising. So we stayed consistent with our mistakes and uh, mm. went ahead and stormed to get it done. And then that deal failed to um, mature back in, I think, round about May of 2013. You know, got a phone call, basically learned in that phone call that they're ditching the product that we were building for them for, you know, the entire company for less than a year. We were wow. focused on getting that thing done. And at that point, it was, you know, no cash, no traction. Uh, we just lost a huge contract on which we built the future of the company on. And, you know, it was like, all right, like, what's next? So I think it started back in, like, mid-2012. But then the final decision of pivoting to build a framework was in mid-2013. Mm -hmm. And so what was next? What did you decide on then? So obviously we ran out of money. And we had a bunch of prototypes and no traction. Mm -hmm. And we had to ask ourselves the hard questions of, like, was our strategy even right? Is the market even here? Do people need what we build? 
what have we learned you know from doing this in the past three years and how can we make benefit on it for the future and we came to a few conclusions you know first gaming is growing and it's here to stay number two we struggled as creators so there must be a ton of other people struggling as creators and it doesn't matter if they're mod authors or app developers if you're building content around games there's so many different things you need to get right so you must be mm -hmm. struggling and we learned on that we bled those struggles so at that point because of that and because of the constant flow of more companies and more users asking for more features we just understood that there's no way we're going to be able to serve all their needs as a single company. So we should turn ourselves into, from a consumer company to like a B2B2C company mm -hmm. and take all of the technology that we've built to serve third-party creators. And you mentioned Hearth Arena. That was one of the first apps on Overwolf created by a third-party developer that before that has a had a website for drafting, heartharena.com. Mm -hmm. And after developing an app, drafting became a lot easier because you didn't have to constantly tab out to the website and manually enter which mm -hmm. cars which cards, like which options you have to choose from. And so that was kind of the decision point, right? We asked ourselves the hard questions. We came to the conclusion that the market's here, the need is here, our strategy was wrong, and we need to be obsessed with just building the best platform out there mm -hmm. and, you know, nothing else and not build content in-house and those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And at what point did you finally see numbers-wise that you were on the right track? I think... It took us something like a year and a half to get the platform right and then to start convincing third-party creators to build using our tools. And at that point, so 2015, we started seeing traction with uh, app developers building and getting like serious engagement with and uh, consumers through this strategy. Hmm. From a revenue standpoint, we only started monetizing in 2016. So it took another year before we saw actual cash return. But I think... Mm -hmm. In 2015, we already have seen traction from third-party developers benefiting from building on Overwolf. Okay. And so until now, we've just been talking about apps, right? Right. But today, you also do mods. Um, mm -hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, a big part of that is your acquisition of CurseForged, which happened last year. Mm -hmm. um, could you first introduce what, what CurseForged is? Sure. CurseForged is a two-sided marketplace for mod authors and gamers. If you're a mod author and you want a place to upload your files and update them and get rewarded for your work, like monetize your work, then CurseForge is a great solution for that. And if you're a gamer and you're looking for mods for the game we support for World of Warcraft or Minecraft or other games, you could go to the website, download them manually or download our app and have a, an easier configuration process on your computer. Hmm. And how did that acquisition fit within your vision? Sure. So ever since our pivot back uh, in 2013, we decided that we're going to be a platform for all gaming user-generated content, mm -hmm. mods included. For example, back in 2014, I posted this uh, thought leadership article in gamesindustry.biz, and the title was Modders are Developers and We Should Stop Treating Them Differently. And in this article... I've talked about how the industry is not welcoming creators necessarily, but fighting them through different tools. And obviously there are cheats and there are bad things that third-party creators do in games. But I think that in the vast majority of times, the content is good. 
it can contribute to the game. And if you do it right, and if you curate the content in a way that's consistent with the game developer's policies, you can actually benefit. Gamers can benefit, you the game developer, and obviously the creator. And so at that point, you know, back when we've done the pivot and done our A round, mods were always a part of the menu. But we didn't want to repeat past mistakes. And so we had to focus really, really well on just doing apps before expanding into mods. And we actually mm-hmm. started working on mods before we acquired CurseForge. So it was back in uh, the beginning of last year. And as we were working and working on our MVP, we came across the opportunity to acquire CurseForge and thought that it's going to be a great shortcut. And so we did. And, you know, we are where we are today. That's cool. And so what are your takeaways from that experience? Because uh, I don't I don't think a lot of people ever get to, you know, acquire a company, especially not from Twitch. Yeah, um, I think it was a really good experience. Very professional. I think the Twitch folks were very focused on what they're looking to get from that from the acquisition and mm-hmm. the most important thing for them was the community both of gamers and authors and maintaining the service and finding the best partner for the long term and i think this is why eventually we won the bid i think they've talked with number of companies game developers and game publishers included and i'm assuming that some companies for them it was just uh, like an asset that they're going to monetize and so the acquisition is about that For game developers, I'm not sure exactly how things went, but for us, uh, our goal was to build a new profession in the world. And I Mm -hmm. think this is why they eventually chose us. Putting the community in the front and particularly the author community, I think played a dramatic role in that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm pleased to share that, you know, just uh, eight months in, we already quadrupled how much money uh, creators make. Uh, So we have this graph that we released with our last newsletter on you know how much uh, creators made back in the Twitch days and how much they make today, so it's about four times uh, what they used to make, and I'm still expecting it to grow based on everything that I'm seeing. That's great. All right, let's um, shift our focus to today. Could you give us a quick overview of like the current state of the modding industry? Sure. So, you know, first modding has existed for about four decades. If you Google what the first mod was, it's called Castle Smurfenstein for Castle Wolfenstein, 1983. At that point, it was mostly, you know, gamers were tech people. Not everybody had a computer. So if you're a gamer, you're likely a developer or you deal with technology and like a good engineer, you like to understand how things are built and then maybe rebuild them and give them your own flavor. And this Mm -hmm. is how things started. This is, Mm -hmm. let's call it, you know, Gen 1. Gen 2 is when game developers started building Creation Kit and mods started getting traction. And a Creation Kit could be like a map editor, say, for you know a game like Warcraft 3 and then Dota and then League of Legends. And I think now we're in like this third generation where if you look at Minecraft and Minecraft Bedrock particularly, two months ago, Satya, their CEO, mentioned that they provided $350 million dollars to mod authors for Minecraft Bedrock since they acquired Minecraft. So this really starts to become a big business. Obviously, we're seeing what happens with Roblox. We're seeing the Bethesda games with you know their creation kits being released. And there's the work that we do. And so I think that we are in a place where this starts to get more like a profession, more organized, a safer environment, more options for authors, and really kind of the future, I think, is that this is going to be a profession, just like being a YouTuber or streamer is. Hmm. Okay. And um, so, 
what, how would you describe Overwolf's role within the modding industry today? Um, like, what will people know know you from? I mean, I'm talking about gamers, but also the creators. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, if we focus on creators, people will know us for providing them the technical tools, mm -hmm. the go-to-market tools, the monetization tools, and the community environment to succeed as a mod author. This is our role. Our role is that if your son in the future or you know someone else's son sits on dinner and their father asks them, hey, so what did you decide what you want to do when you grow up? And then the son is going to say, yeah, I'm going to be a modder for whatever, Minecraft or another game, GTA. And I would want, I would imagine a future in which at that point the father says, you know, right on son, good luck. Mm. This is already a legitimate profession. You can actually mm -hmm. make a very decent living. So I, you know, and I don't need to worry about your future because, you know, there is a way to make it work. Mm -hmm. So this is our role in a nutshell. We're a company that is aimed to serve creators, to third, serve third party creators who are building content around games and to provide an environment for them to grow. And to make that happen, we need to think about three main customers sort of uh, you know first and foremost the creators and this is you know just like for twitch streamers are like their main customers for us uh, mod developers and app developers are the main customer but then there are also two other really really important customers which are the gamers themselves mm -hmm. that need to get you know high quality products with no bullshit and viruses or malware or all these things that we need to curate mm -hmm. and there are the game developers who are actually building those games from the first place and want to be able to trust a third party to manage their ecosystem without them needing to work really, really hard to doing it. Like, mm -hmm. if you think about it, if you want to have a successful creator community around your game, then you need to build so many elements. You need to build discovery. You need to have like an app store inside your game so that people can discover mods and rate them. You need to have a live ops team for content curation. You need to do payments for thousands of creators, theoretically. And if we provide it for you as an engine, just like... You may use Unity or Unreal to build your game. You may use us to support your creator community. This is exactly how we're thinking about this, and this is our role. Mm -hmm. That's great. Let's yeah, let's get into that a bit later. Uh, but before that, um, let's talk about the people who are currently creating on the platform. You described the scenario where a father asks their son, "You know, what are you doing today?" So is that how we have to look at these creators um, or are like some of them also already like a level further where their companies um, are really building this stuff? Um, I mean, we're seeing both uh, very young people, but also people who are probably 50 plus years old, you know, doing this for a living. My metaphor, the goal was to sort of, you know, legitimize and, and make it, I mean, just like being a YouTuber became this thing that everybody knows about and you know nobody's surprised with kids saying they want to be youtubers just like you know when i was a kid people wanted to be rock stars mm -hmm. you know it's it's for me it's kind of the same thing it's hard to be a youtuber it's hard to be a rock star but it's a career path you can pursue and if you're mm -hmm. really talented you're going to do a great job and i think in our place it's the same thing it's it's a career path that's hard to pursue but if you're going to do a great job you're going to be extremely successful just like the mm -hmm. best youtubers out there and so to your question, I think right now it's very diversified. We have startups building on Overwolf. We have bigger companies like Intel even building on Overwolf. And we have, you know, indie developers, you know, young kids, college students who are building as well. Mm -hmm. um, and because um, I've never tried to, to build an app, how should we think about the complexity? What kind of technical knowledge uh, do people need in order to get started building with, with Overwolf? 
the rule of thumb is that if you can build a website, you can build an Overwolf app. Okay. And you mean a website from scratch, not necessarily one, the drag and drop one? <laughs> yeah, well, from scratch, right? Yeah, you okay. need to know a bit of HTML and JavaScript to be able to do that. Um, okay. But you're right. Like if you can do your website with Wix, um, you know, that's probably not a fit. You need okay. to All right. know your HTML and JavaScript to be able to build an app. You know, I wish I could tell you that it's like a no-code solution and there's going to be just around the corner an ability for people to just customize and build their apps. It's just not the case. Apps are a little bit more complicated than mods in the sense. There are like, they could be really complicated, could be really simple. I mean, mods, you know, is a code name for anywhere from like texture changing to like really overall mods that are really complicated to develop. And so mm -hmm. um, that's in the mods front, but apps, you have to know your HTML and JavaScript. Mm -hmm. Cool. And just as a reference, listeners, if you might be intimidated by the fact that you'll need to learn a programming language, after my university studies in business, I wanted to learn how to make an app. So I went into like some kind of fast summer course into web development and it took me two months and I, I was like pretty comfortable with HTML and, HTML yep. and JavaScript. So um, it's really pretty fast to get started with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the good news. That's the simplest and most popular, you know, development language probably mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Now let's, um, as a gaming industry, um, and as gamers as well, we want to have as many people as possible, you know, building mods, building apps, because I mean, they can provide the tools that you need to, you know, bring your game um, and your enjoyment of the game to a next level. How should we as an industry, like what can we do to get more people to start building these mods and apps? I think the number one thing, so obviously we're working really hard on solving all of the problems, but if what we want is volume, the number one thing we can do is direct integrations with the game developers themselves. So like when you open the game menu, you see a mods tab, you click the mods tab, and then there's a whole lot of things you can download, but then there's mm -hmm. the small button, there's a small call to action saying something like, hey, do you wanna build something? And if you click it, then you go to the community area where you can talk with people, you can read or listen to webinars or podcasts like this one or see a video and a tutorial on how to start building. And I think if we do this from kind of the ground up from the game to the creators, I think that's probably the best way to reach scale. And I think mm -hmm. honestly, the industry is at this point mature to reach that scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So in a recent article, um, you predicted that you would be paying out $29 million to app and mod developers. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell me a bit more about your business model? Where does that money come from? And how do you split revenues with uh, other stakeholders in, this, in your ecosystem? Sure. So I can tell you where it is right now and where we want to take it in the future. Okay. Where it is right now, the way we monetize alongside the creators that choose to work with us is through ads, donations, and subscriptions. The way this works is if you have an app that all of the ads that you show in your app's real estate is revenue that you're earning for yourself. And we do a rev share, it's a 70-30 split. So we keep 30% and the creator gets uh, 70%. Same for donations or subscriptions that are in the context of your app. However, if you're building a mod, that's already more complicated because you cannot put an ad in a mod and mm -hmm. you know there needs to be like a mod manager. So in this case, there's CurseForge and it acts kind of like Spotify. So it's a marketplace for content. You consume content and then the artists get rewarded 
based on engagement. And engagement is a factor of actual usage and downloads and a bunch of other things we have behind the scenes to determine true engagement, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that we're constantly improving at. And uh, mm. creators sometimes try to find <laughs> ways <laughs> to um, you know, understand how we do it and optimize conditions yeah. for themselves. But imagine you know, this uh, pool of cash that every month uh, is being distributed pro rata based on engagement. All so right. this is roughly how it works right now. Uh-huh. The way I wanted to work in the future, and we were already kind of integrating with a bunch of game developers under that strategy, is we're going to add in-app purchases so that some mods might be free, some mods might be paid mods. Perhaps you'll need to do a subscription to get access to all the paid mods within the game. And then the game developer is going to participate in this economy. And uh, how the way we're thinking about this is the creator needs to get um, basically 50% roughly from uh, the funds. And then together with the game developer, we split the rest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're like an enabling layer. The game developer owns the IP. The creator is uh, front and center. This is why I believe that they need to get the lion's share of the revenue. Mm-hmm. But then there has to be something for the game developer, for them to be incentivized to continue supporting the community, something for us, uh, for everything that we're building. Mm-hmm. And this is how I want it to be long term. In the future, future, I don't know when. I mean, we, we survived, what's that, like 25 minutes without saying NFTs. So I'll say NFTs now. Oh, right. Um, I like this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, when, as, as it matures and as it becomes relevant, potentially, allowing the options for, for creators to kind of do that allows you as a game developer to sort of get your feet wet with NFTs, but not necessarily add that into your game economy just yet and, you know, start saying how it behaves and how it works and at least theoretically and at least for some games it could be something very beneficial both for gamers creators and game developers hmm. mm-hmm. um just for clarity for me to understand uh currently for your apps so you have the ads you have donations and subscriptions uh what is currently like the the where, where does the, re- the line share of the revenue come from there currently ads okay yeah i wish it would would have been subscriptions we're not there mm-hmm. yet i think we have so much to do to get there but i think eventually also with time it's probably going to be around 50 50 or more right now it's leaning uh towards ads mm-hmm. i think you know ads done right are really important in fueling a creator economy mm-hmm. you can see it with uh, tiktok or snapchat or youtube or twitch it basically allows people that create mediocre content in their early stages to make some money because it's really mm-hmm. difficult to get paid support, you know, even, you know, Patreon, amazing product. But what we see with in-game creators, people building apps and mods, sometimes if they have a Patreon page, they will get like a really low amount of supporters that is going to make their life difficult to sustain. Mm -hmm. And I think it's public information. So I think I can mention it here. The creator of Deadly Boss Mod, a super popular add-on for World of Warcraft, has his Patreon page, but every now and then he needs to kind of remind the community, hey guys, you know, this is the way I can support myself and I'm dedicating my life to building this amazing product that serves the gaming community. Can you guys please support me? But what happens is, you know, that would create uh, a lot of subscriptions when this happens, but then go Mm -hmm. down over time. Mm -hmm. So the way, you know, in a way it's not sustainable. And also for him, asking and reminding the community to do this every few months, it's not necessarily a pleasant experience. So we're trying Mm -hmm. to kind of provide a uh, passive at least for the creators passive ways to generate revenue mm-hmm. all right interesting um c- 
could you tell me a bit more about the competitive landscape of modding and apps and how Overworld differs from uh, from other companies in this space? Sure. Um, so on the apps front, I think the biggest competitor is probably Electron, so Microsoft. Uh, they built a framework for building you know, desktop apps using web technology. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the gaming apps that you'd see out there that are not on Overwolf are using Electron. Mm-hmm. It's simply, you know, if you have a gaming website, building a gaming app with Electron or Overwolf is easy. Mm-hmm. On that front, the differentiator is that we have capabilities that Electron doesn't have. And, uh, for example, in-game overlay, if you want to do that, real-time telemetry, so knowing what's happening in the game to create more meaningful experiences, modernization, publishing, and distribution, we have relationships with the game developers. So if you want us to introduce you to someone because you want to get feedback, uh, then we handle this as well. Analytics, crash reporting, we support you with your CDN, and we provide you with like an ability to switch to Electron if you don't want to work with us in a very easy way. So you're, in a, in a way, getting all the benefits without losing control and with always uh, like a fallback option if you want to. So I think on the apps front, it's Electron, and this is our differentiators. Mm-hmm. On the mods front, our competitors are you either build it in-house, as we know some of the game developers have built similar solutions uh, in-house. You work with uh, some of the solutions that Microsoft offers, uh, things that they do in their Minecraft ecosystem and are start to offer through PlayFab that could be utilized for managing your mod and add-on community. You could use uh, Steam Workshop, you could use Mod.io, Um, There are probably other solutions you could use. And I think our main differentiators on the mods front is that our service is um, the only service that allows creators to monetize from day one. With all the rest, it's going to be a long time before creators monetize. Mm -hmm. And if you, the game developer, if you have this understanding that you want to support your creators, then we're probably the best solution to start with. Mm. The second part is that the solution is free. It's only based on future rev share should you choose to uh, monetize these mods through allowing your community to charge money for them. You can, by the way, stay for free and not monetize them at all. And, you know, that's fine for us. But I'm sure, and, you know, based on conversations we're having with game developers, some will want to monetize, and this is how Mm -hmm. we're planning to make money. The third differentiator that we have is that we have around 20 million monthly active users. And so if you work with us, you get top of the funnel discovery to an existing community, both of end gamers, but also of creators, so about 30,000 creators in total. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then lastly, we don't only provide the technical tools, we provide a full sort of end-to-end solution of a live service maintenance for your product. Because I think that even if you choose to build things in-house, the big problem is not necessarily building the hosting solutions and you know server-side, whatever you're going to build, or the store. The biggest problem is uh, live ops. So... <laughs> Managing the creator community, doing payments, doing curation, and we're already doing it at a very mm-hmm. large scale. So around 15 billion downloads per year of these mods with dedicated people for all these uh, communities and with automation tools to do curation. And so I think we can actually provide that to you as a service so that you can benefit from building a creator community for your game without the hassle. So <laughs> that was the long answer. Hopefully mm-hmm. it covers most things. Mm-hmm. Talking about those game developers, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, so I, I said I used Overwolf the overlay for Warzone, uh, mm-hmm. but if I'm not mistaken, that the Call of Duty recently removed your access to their game. Mm-hmm. Could you talk to us about how developers and publishers um, look at what you're building, and if there are different different you know sides uh, there? Sure. I mean, 
you know, the good news is uh, that we're back supporting Warzone as of, uh, I don't know, like a month and a half or two months okay. ago. Uh, so support is back on. But this is a good question because what happened is one of the apps on Overwolf uh, did something around matchmaking that we um, did not really understand was problematic. And since we did not have a direct relationship with Raven, the creators of Warzone, they uh, provided a very technical, very easy, what was basically, the way they called it, it was uh, the path of least resistance. Basically, the easiest way for them is just to block overwolf.exe or something, mm. and that's it. Mm. And so when that happened, you know, we reached out to the people that we are in contact with at Activision, and then got in front of the right people at Raven, and went through all these discussions on what went wrong, and how can we prevent it from being wrong in the future. And so after about a month and something of being with no support, we brought support back up under their approval. You know, that was the the genesis of um, removing support was because a creator did something that they weren't supposed to do hmm. from the game developer's perspective. The ideal solution is that they would just email me or, you know, <laughs> the team members at Overwolf and would just reach out to the developer because all these developers, mm-hmm. they have pure intents. They just want to improve the game experience. Mm-hmm. If we send them an email saying, hey, you know, we got this uh, email from Raven and they're asking you guys to remove this feature because of 123, the feature is going to be removed within 12 hours. And if, it, and if it won't, by the way, we'll remove the app ourselves. So we, we also have a kill switch for every app. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it goes back to one of the things we've talked about at the beginning, which is with user-generated content, there's amazing things that could happen, but there's mm-hmm. also the dark side, mm-hmm. you know, the cheats or the things the game developers don't like. And this yeah. is exactly our role. We want to be the sheriff and be very clear that we are 100% consistent with the way game developers see things, first and foremost. So if they don't like something around their game, it's just not going to happen because, you know, it's their game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a facilitator, it's our role to support them in that sense. So right. this is the Warzone story. Uh, but, yeah. you know, as the company grows and matures, uh, I'm hopeful that, um, you know, we know more and more people. And if they have any issues, just they can just email me. Yeah. All right. Um, and so practically... Let's say um, I was a game developer. The running joke on the, the Metacast roundtable is that I'm building a games company and I'm going in all different directions. But let's say I want to you know, uh, allow for mods and apps inside my game um, and I wanted to work with Overwolf. From pr- Practically, how would I have to approach this? Who do I reach out to? What are the steps in that process? Sure. So I will divide it into mods and apps because it's mm-hmm. two different integrations. Mm-hmm. If you want to do apps, then you can uh, basically reach out to us either directly to me via email to a biz development team to our support team and uh, say that you want to work with us what we would then do is look at your game understand what type of apps can be built around it and then send you a package for real-time telemetry that you might want to integrate with your game it's a very small c sharp or c plus plus or whatever library that you ship with your game that fires real-time client-side events so that people can create meaningful experiences. Integration usually takes for this particular thing around two days. And then every now and then there is like ongoing maintenance of adding more and more features. It's basically client-to-client communication between Overwolf if it's installed, we translate it to the app developers and the game. This is the only thing you got to do. The advantages are people will start creating onboarding tools, stats apps, highlights apps, I don't know, and anything else you would want to encourage the creator community to develop. Mm -hmm. That's option number one. 
If you want to do mods, you go to core.curseforge.com or again, if you want, you can email me and in core.curseforge.com, you can kind of apply to uh, start having a conversation around mods for your game. And then once you do that, again, we'll have to look at the game. Not all games are created equal. We need to understand how the game is built technically. Are you planning to have like a math editor or a creation kit? Or do you expect people to build it themselves? Is it a Unity game? Because for Unity, there are already existing tools that allow you to create the mods themselves. Um, and then once we figure out the technical part, we'll talk about vision. Like what do you envision people will create around your game? Is it going to be cosmetics? Is it going to be maps? Is it going to be overall mods? Is it going to be, you know, anything in between? Then once we understand that, we think about how to go to market. Like, is your game even launched? Are you still working on it? No, great, you want to launch it in a year? All right, let's maybe do a hackathon, like a $50,000 hackathon of creators. Hey, if you want to build content for this game, here are a bunch of prizes and you know, let's start working together on building content. I think with all these things, it's, it's a journey which starts essentially with like where you want to reach at the end and what type of freedom you want to enable for your game. Um, but if everything I said doesn't make sense, uh, <laughs> the short answer is uh, you either email me or you go to core.courseforge.com and contact us and we'll walk you through the process. So are you going to get a lot of emails already, I'm afraid? I hope so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's the goal. Look, I do believe that there's a new generation of game, gamers growing up right now. People playing Roblox and Minecraft that are used to endless customizations and possibilities. And I think that user-generated content apps and mods, they're going to have a meaningful part in the future of the games industry. And if you're a game developer and you're not thinking that it's important, then, you know, I humbly think you're, you might be missing out on an opportunity to build something bigger from whatever it is you're building. And obviously it's not a fit for everybody. And obviously timing is always an issue and, you know, you have mm -hmm. to be very clear on what you don't want to do and, and when. But just to give you an example, we recently made an investment, uh, like an equity investment in Game Studio. And those guys, from day one, they said, we're shipping the game with a creation kit. And we want, from day one, to start seeing what the community creates. And, you know, for us, this is the ideal partner because they already know they have a plan. Mm -hmm. And we just, we're just there to facilitate live ops and some back-end work. That's awesome. Um, and what are some other things that developers can do to create a thriving ecosystem around their game of mod and app creators? It's a really good question. I think you know the, the first and most fundamental thing, uh, since I haven't said that, I have to say it now, is just create an amazing game that is fun mm. to play. This yeah. is where things start. Like If you think about, hey, I'm going to have an amazing creator community and then you build a shit, shitty game, <laughs> you're not going to have an amazing creator community. So it all starts with just having an amazing game. But if from the beginning you can think about those elements inside the game that are going to be fun to customize, whether it's a lobby experience or cosmetics or like really anything, then you have a shot at having a thriving creator community around your game. I think these are the only two things you got to do as a game developer. You know, one, just build a great game. Very, very mm -hmm. hard to do. Easy to say, <laughs> hard to do. Um, and then B, think about what is going to be and under which sandbox you're going to allow creations to happen around your game. Once you have these two, we'll help you with the rest. So, you know, I think you're going to have a pretty successful game community. Sorry, mm -hmm. like creator community around your game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. All right, moving on. Um, I read on your story that um, the last funding round was different from the ones before that. Could you tell a bit more about how that was? Yeah. So in our A round, right, I told the story 2013, 2012, all that mess. 
I want to say I probably talked with like 50 different investors mm. that did not understand what the hell I want from them and definitely did not invest in the company. And until I found this investor that said, hey, maybe, you know, and then we, we were able to turn that maybe into a yes. So that was really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. However, when we decided to do this funding round back in Q4 of last year, it was something like, we made the decision that we're going to do the round. So we reached out to a handful of people with which we've talked in the past. Not a handful. It was about a dozen, maybe, different entities. And then we got interest from like just about all of them. And um, within, I want to say, like three to four weeks, we got our first uh, term sheet, which we ended up going with. Wow. That's a really sort of, you know, it's... a correcting experience um you know based on past experience that i've had do, mm-hmm. doing uh, fundraisers and i mean i mean it's obvious the company is on a great trajectory we had uh not only I th- what i think is an interesting story but also proof that there's room for that and so mm-hmm. it made things a lot easier and you know at each stage you got to find the right investor to believe in your story sometimes it might be just a presentation sometimes it's uh, an mvp with some traction but sometimes it's a good mix of both and then it makes things a lot easier. Mm-hmm. All right. So you guys now have a, a solid bank account to, to go forward. So let's talk about Overwolf's future. Um, what is on your roadmap and how do you think about scaling the company? Mm-hmm. So on our roadmap is building uh, the in-game creator community as a profession. <laughs> That's like super, super high level. Our strategy is we're going to listen to what creators want, what game developers want, prioritize based on common sense, and try and build as fast as we can and answer the most needs that we can that come from creators, first and foremost. And then to help put some more fuel in the bonfire and help it burn faster and greater, we plan to announce um, a fund of uh, around $30 million dollars Uh, We're thinking that we're going to announce it in a few weeks. And the goal of that fund is to build a creator community. It's going to be like the first fund in gaming that at least I know of that is going to invest particularly in this vertical Mm -hmm. directly in game studios or in in creators themselves. Uh, We'll be flexible with our structure. So we'll do both grants and equity investments or community investments. And we want to work with... um, you know, studios that want to join our mission to kind of build this as a profession. So this is roughly how we're going to do it. Just to give an example, let's say your studio, like the one we invested in, you know that this is something that you want to get done. You know that you're not going to build everything yourself in-house. So we can be a great partner that provides not only tech infrastructure, but also funding to help you see through. If you're not interested in us being a shareholder in the company, great. Maybe we can find other ideas. For example, do all those hackathons and find those hackathons and incentivize creators to come to your game and start building uh, high-quality content. If you don't want to do both of these things, but you have a great game, maybe we can find existing creator communities around your game and see how we can double down on scaling them with some sort of an official relationship with you. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are so many modding communities right now that are huge, but are doing it without a direct connection to the game developer. And, you know, we can kind of create that through putting structure and procedures and culture and... I don't know, communication to to make it happen. So this is from, you know, broadly speaking, this is what we want to do with uh, the investment we received. 
Fantastic. So what is, in your opinion, because there's quite mixed opinions about modding, what is the gaming industry in general underestimated, underestimating when it comes to the future of modding? I think that a lot of uh, game developers understand quality and they think that the community can never get to the level of polish that is required from content to be successful. And so from the get-go, they're saying, hey, there's no way I see this working. There is no way I see this meeting my quality bar. And so we're not interested. My answer to them is quality bar is something that can be managed. A, you can manage expectations and you, know, um, you have a mods tab or you call it jungle or you call it beta. And the expectation from someone that goes to explore these things is in advance, you know, you're going to see some different things and it does not have the quality stamp of the game developer. And I think it's legitimate. Especially like if you're creating a single player games that has like 50 hours of gameplay, 60 hours of gameplay. Why not, especially if you're preventing, if you're planning on doing sequels, why not allow creators to build something on top of that? Like, I don't see the reason why not to, as long as you manage expectations the right way. Mm -hmm. I think for others that do see the value and don't have problems with quality bars or setting expectations, it's just the headache. They're saying, hey, there's just not a way that we're going to manage that. And this is exactly why we're here. And, you know, I'm having a lot of conversations with studios early on. And they're basically saying, look, I don't care about creative community. I just want to build a high quality game for people to play. And, they're, but, and you know, they're right. That's the number one thing they should focus on. But if they could put, you know, just a bit of thinking on how this could pan out, um, because we're able to provide them... Uh, a UGC as a service type solution, then it's actually not going to be such a great defocus for them. <laughs> so I think it comes down to the quality bar and just worrying that it's just going to be one of those good ideas, never going to work. So, you know, I don't mm. want to waste cycles on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are some uh, very impressive examples. I remember uh, downloading like 200 mods for Skyrim, of which one was mm -hmm. this extra campaign which was amazing. It was like that, like depth, and I think it even won some prizes for writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean Bethesda, from like their culture, they went really deep on just providing an amazing creation kit for the community to build stuff. And then, even though Skyrim is what like twelve years old or something, eleven, I don't know, people still create content for Skyrim. And you know, I would argue that you know this is what made Skyrim what it is today, and this is what's going to make like. Um, the Elder Scroll Six, um, whenever that comes out, very very successful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because I'm, I guarantee that Bethesda are going to come with an amazing creation kit, and they probably have some really cool integrations with like the Microsoft Marketplace, whatever, whatever. Um, you know, post acquisition, and it's just going to be amazing to see people that have created content around the Elder Scrolls for years continuing to do this with uh, the next title. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, I just think it makes a ton of sense for everybody. Mm -hmm yeah totally all right so at the end we have two fixed questions that we ask every guest on the show and the first is what is the best piece of advice that you've received on building a company in in the games industry uh focus on quality <laughs> so three words uh, that actually have two advice or advices like in them one yeah, is focus yeah. the other one is quality yeah uh so this is my way to sneak in two in the price of one so just focus on quality it's, it really is the only thing that matters mm -hmm. yeah, i agree all right and then uh, finally as a final note to our listeners could you share a bold prediction about something in the games industry 
so I've thought about this, um, and um, I had ideas for things that are a bit more radical, um, but I think my my prediction is that having a creator community around your game is going to be a standard in five years. We're obviously trying to make it happen, so I'm yeah, kind yeah. of speaking from my own position, uh, <laughs> but you know, I don't have any any big, like, ideas around other things that I can really stand behind um, apart from just having like you know gossip or like whatever clickbait type art, uh, quotes yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> why did that guy say that why yeah. <laughs> I just think you know I, I I really believe that you know in five years it's going to be a very very prominent thing in the games yeah. industry I believe so and I hope so too because um, from my experience with mods and apps they've always it was always optional right and if, if you wanted it you you just got it and it was always really uh, enriching yep. cool all right so um uri thank you very much for for being on the show thank you Nikki, for having me I had a great time awesome so dear listener thank you for listening to the episode if you like what you heard feel free to give us a five-star rating leave a comment or subscribe to the show and for more content about the business of games visit navic.co if you'd like us to interview someone else, let us know at metacast.navic.co and you can always also find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. This was the Metacast by Navic and we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.